We're going to be in uh, a few verses, uh, 7 to 12 this morning, or through 13. So in preparation for that, let me ask you a question. Do you ever recall a time in your life where, I mean, we have our day-to-day. Think of the day-to-day version of you. Wake up, the rhythm, you know, Monday through Friday, your weekly rhythm. Um, think of the, what I, so you have that. We'll just call that your general life. And then, in addition to our general life, are those moments in our life where uh, that is disrupted, whether you go on vacation, right? But I, I'm thinking uh, like more profound than that. Um, just a unique period of life uh, where, whether through trial or circumstance or uh, some sort of event you you get you you come to know yourself a little bit better i give you some examples you know if, if you were to go through a job transition that would be one moving relocating is could be another one maybe uh if you went to, if you were 18 years old and you went off to boot camp that's a, a great one a great example because you know when you when you change place and setting and rhythm and then you kind of put it under pressure it evokes in us all these things uh, that we learn about ourselves. And the strange thing about moments like that, uh, hardship, is invariably people will come out of those things reflecting quite profoundly on what they've learned in their life from them. They'll say, I'm, I appreciate so much that experience. And you'd say, well, you want to go back and do it again? They say, no, we you crazy experience. And you'd say, well, you want to go back and do it again? They say, no, were you crazy no, I, don't have, I have no desire to go back and do it again, but whew, what great lessons. You know, it, it might even be something like you did P90X, right? Some sort of fitness thing where eight months later, so not 90 days later, but eight months later, you're saying to your friend, I've never felt so good as when I was in that program. I mean, I could jump chairs and I ran across the parking lot and I just, I felt so vibrant. It's the best I've ever felt in my whole life. And they say to you, well, are you still doing it? You go, No. It was 90 days, P90. Like, it was tough. You're like, but you felt, you felt so good doing it. Yeah, but it was hard. I was recently uh, at a kind of a gathering, and there was a, a, a very uh, kind of wise pastor sharing to the group. And he said that the two things that change Christians the most in his mind is suffering and short-term mission trips. And he said, and nobody ever volunteers to suffer. But he said, it's just, those things are so transformative for people because they change your place in your setting and, and, and God moves in a unique way. Now, I'm saying all of this because we're going to look in the scriptures today and we're going to see Jesus sending the 12 out two by two. And I, we're going to see the unique circumstances of how they were sent and what they were called to do. And I want to point at that. It's unique. The disciples did not go out two by two for the rest of their life. They went out and they came back. And they went out of 72 and they came back. And then even in their life lived, just lived after the resurrection of Christ. It didn't look exactly like this. This was a unique setting. And so there's, there's times when we come to unique circumstances in Scripture, and we are tempted to do one of two things. One is we, we like, throw on our shoulders this huge burden of Scripture, like, I can't do that. 
I mean, they go from town to town with no money and no clothes, and they just, you know, like throw themselves on the mercy of God. And they're like, man, I'm so bad. I mean, there's there's a way that we... We look at a unique circumstance and then we carry it over to our normal life and it's excessively heavy. And I'm saying, let's not do that. It's a unique circumstance. There's another thing we do though is we look at unique circumstances in our life and when it comes over to our life, we totally like invalidate it because we go, well, that's a unique circumstance. And, you know, God doesn't really want me to do Pass through the eye of a needle. Ha! That's a unique story for no, so let's not do either one. Let's, let's rem- remark to ourselves that when unique circumstances take place in our own life, when we have those chapters where we learn something, and then we leave them, but we bring something with us. There's something you learn about yourself or you know that you should have learned while you were there that you're like, I should hold on to that. And, and that's what we'll do this morning. We're going to walk through... Just uh, several verses here. We're going to walk through and uh, kind of look at the different ideas that are presented here and kind of be aware of the uniqueness about this narrative, but also uh, more broadly aware of what does this generally say to us us today. So I'm going to read it. I think I have, if you're a note taker, something like six points, but seven's a better number, so say seven, and uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, Mark 6, verse 7. And this is speaking of Jesus. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and if they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Okay, that's it. So you see it's kind of a special circumstance. And if we go right to the top, the first thing I'd like us to look at is kind of verse 7a, this idea that they went out two by two. Jesus sends them out two by two. You know, that's often the case. Scriptures, you see people with a traveling companion, not always, but often. Some people follow this like a rule, you know, uh, kind of a rigid, you must go two by two, robotic attitude, you know, the Jehovah's Witness they travel in two by twos. Mormon missionaries go two by two. Um, I don't think so much that it's a magical number or, or that there's uh, a tremendous depth of mystery here, but I do think there's, it's worth asking why, especially in our culture. Uh, I think this is especially important to ask, is why, why go out two by two? I, I mean, I have thoughts here. There, none, none of them are... Uh, took a lot of study. It's not good to be alone. That's a reason. It's not good, you know, you think of Genesis, it's not good for the man to be alone. Come, I'll make a helper suitable for him. I mean, I think that principle's playing out. It's just, it's not good to be alone. 
You know, I mean, I would say maybe safety, except for the fact that I don't think primarily safety because the Lord is clearly, as you reread the whole narrative, the Lord is clearly trying to demonstrate his power in their life. So I don't think he's saying bring somebody in case you get jumped or mugged. I think it's just bring somebody because it's not good. There's so much that comes from having a partner with you in the work. Bounce things off of them. They bet you balance one another. You have a bad day, they step up. They have a bad day, you step up. You know, when you're a team, you kind of tag in and out like that. You can draw things out of a person. You can filter things. You can serve as a witness. You know, there's two witnesses now to something that takes place. I think that's... Uh, it's, re- it's very important... And I want to say, I'm not, I'm not so interested in, do you, do you have a friend, okay? Do you have a friend? I'm, I'm more interested in, in the place where you, you would imagine that you do most of the kingdom work or where you feel sent or the place where you feel like, I, I am the farmer tilling the earth here, you know? Do you have a partner there? I, I don't want us to. I don't want us to say, "Oh, yeah, I'm married. I have a partner." What? Yeah, but I'm married, and, and I don't see that person with twelve, fifteen hours a day. So, what about in the twelve when the sun is up? When I almost never see her, who am I with? I think in this situation, the unique thing is they are, Christ is pulling them out and devoting them to a specific mission. I mean, this is really special, right? There's, this happens rarely to people that they're going to be pulled out. This is kind of like a short-term mission trip. Just select it out. That's unique. But generally, though, generally, though, I would say the Christian life is not supposed to be lived out alone. I mean, one is the loneliest number. It just is. And this is a thought I have. I think we overwhelmingly interpret our kingdom purpose through the lens of one, I, me. What does God want me to do? What does he want me to say? How am I supposed to? I I think in our culture, we are a culture of one. And maybe that's why... Maybe that's why you're intimidated in your walk. I'm saying in your workplace, when you, when you are a little nervous about make, taking a step out, maybe the reason you're worried about taking a step out is because you're, you feel alone. I, I would say, are you alone? Are, have you ever felt like you're the only one, the only follower of Christ in an environment? Because I would say, I think this is a worthy prayer. God, please send me someone. I just don't think the Lord intended that you would be doing the work alone. That's, that's what I think is, is uh, typically the case in Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is, is that God brings uh, people alongside. Well, let's match it up with the second part of that verse. He says, And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. 
So he doesn't intend them to be alone, nor does he intend them to do this under their own steam or under their own power. The Lord gives them authority. Now what's unique here is Jesus has to uniquely give them this authority because Jesus has not been resurrected from the dead. The Holy Spirit has not been given to the disciples. I mean, that simply hasn't taken place. This is, in a sense, the cart before the horse. So Jesus has to say it to embolden them. You're going to go out, and when you go out, I am endowing you with my authority to do the things that I do. I think that's what's a little bit unique about the situation. I will say, more generally, I think we need to be reminded of this. There's things we know, we just, uh, maybe we need to be reminded of this. That do you remember, do you recall in a useful way in your life that God has not sent you, God has not challenged you to go out in this world without giving you a power, his power. This is one of those where I know it more than I believe it. I I know it. I would get it right on a test. But I get it wrong in my life, frequently. Uh, You know, uh, I'm a student better than I am a follower. God has encouraged us. You're in this life. We've been generally sent into this world and we have been sent with his power. I mean, didn't that say the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth? We've been given his Holy Spirit. And so you see, God doesn't want us to be alone, nor does he want us to do it under our own steam. It's not so much, these are the reasons we don't go. We don't go sometimes because we feel like we don't have the power to be effective. And I would challenge that with Jesus did not send the disciples when they had, were fully equipped with all the techniques to be effective. He sent them under his power. Here's how he sent them. Look at 8 through 10. I'm going to look at a few verses here. He says, take nothing. That's essentially what he said. Don't bring your bag. Don't bring bread. Don't bring money in your belt. There's three parallel accounts of this uh, sending. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe it. And I think in Matthew, he says, don't bring your money purse. And there's, it's, this passage is edified a little more. He says, essentially, because you're not going there to receive, you're going to give. If you don't have a money purse, you don't have any place for people to put money. You go be a giver. But don't bring anything. And then you even see in the 10th verse this uh, reflection, uh, this kind of simplicity, this simple reflection on, on where they live. And he says, wherever you enter a house, now this sounds a little odd, wherever you enter, stay there until you depart from there, right? That sounds really brilliant. Stay until you go. Um, what, it, what he's actually saying is, Relax about the logistics of it all. You're going to go to a town. If somebody takes you in, stay in that house until you leave the town. Don't upgrade houses. Like when your message is received and you go from zero to a hero, don't abandon the poor family that brought you in initially. Something like that. Or if you have this 
a really bad mattress that you're staying in? Stop brainstorming and problem solving. Stay there and chalk it up to the Holy Spirit, saying, I guess the Lord just wants to teach me something. Put to rest all of the problem solving that you and I do all the time. That's what he said. I mean, do you... We equip ourselves with things, we fill our life up with things that we use to solve problems. And he's saying, none of that. Stop that. Now, uniquely here, I mean, I think it's important to note that God really wants to demonstrate his sufficiency. I mean, the, probably the most underwriting principle here is this isn't a time for the disciples to rely on the Lord and to determine and understand and discover for themselves that the Lord is entirely reliable. So go rely on me and discover me as fully reliable. That's certainly probably uh, the heart teaching right there. But next to it is this process. How does he do that? He does it by simplifying their life. In other words, if you are equipped with stuff, you will not rely on Jesus. That's, that's the assumption here. Why don't they bring other stuff? Because if they have other stuff, they'll use it. And if they use it, they will miss him. That's what we do. We have all this stuff on the shelf for the purpose of solving problems when they come around. So that when a problem does come around, it is a question of logistics, not really a question of faith. Most often, most often, now, I know, right, some of you are saying, well, that's not wrong. I'm not, I'm not indicting it. I'm saying let's look at the unique circumstances in a unique moment. Jesus chose to strip all of it away so that they would learn this reliance. This is, they're going to come out of this. They're probably going to say, that was the best time of my life, relying on the Lord. And you're saying, well, why do you have a job now? Uh, it was the best time of my life. Right? It's one of these times where it's these unique circumstances. But nonetheless, very generally speaking, we should observe how the logistics of our life compete with kingdom work. In a, in a few ways. First of all, it competes with the reliance on him. You know, we, we have all the stuff on the shelf. The temptation is to put faith behind glass, use that stuff to solve as many problems as we can, and you break the glass of faith in case of emergency only. Don't touch it unless it's really bad. And you go, now this is, an, this is a matter of faith. Everything else was a matter of just logistics, but this is a matter of faith. It's gotten really bad now. You know, as, as though faith was a, something in the first aid kit on the shelf. It's one of the things on the shelf. So I have I have this for that problem, and I have this for that problem, and I have this for that problem, and if none of those work, I have faith. That, what that means, that translated means that most of your life is entirely secular until something goes wrong. 
versus, I would say in, in a general way, versus the arm that reaches is an arm of faith. So you have to think, we have these things in life. We have things on the shelf. We have friends and stuff and jobs. We have these things, right? They were fishers, fishermen. We, we, we have these things. God's design and heart would be that the arm that reaches is an arm of faith. Not that the faith is a thing on the shelf, but that in everything we're doing, it's, it's spiritual, that's, that's the first idea here. This is the second idea, is the sheer work of logistics takes up so much space in our life. So as to make kingdom work difficult. Especially if it's, I do this, and then I do my kingdom work. I would say, to what degree, here's a question, to what degree do the logistical demands of the life you've chosen compete with your participation in God's kingdom? To what degree do the logistical demands of the life you've, hear this, that you've chosen, that we've chosen, compete with our participation in his kingdom? Now, all of this can be turned on its head if, if we are participating in his kingdom as we do all the things in our life, right? That unlocks everything. It's just like if the arm that reaches to the shelf is an arm driven by faith, it unlocks everything. But if you do all of these things logistically and over here is where you do the spirit stuff, that's problematic. I think here the Lord is saying, I want you to rely on me and I want, I want to be constantly, constantly in the things you're doing. All right, in verse 11, uh, he says something pretty provocative. And if you, any place you're not received, he says, I want you to take your sandals off, shake the dust off your feet. Now notice he says, as what? As a testimony against them. So it's not like this. It's not like they don't, it's not like you're cleansing yourself of their badness. You're not kind of shaking the dust off your feet where they can't, in the corner where they can't see you because you want to get them off of you. That's not it. It's, I find this uh, fascinating and troubling at the same time. It has trash talk in it. All right? It's, it's that. It has a little bit of that. Like, we're so done with you. It says, it's as a testimony against them. It's a very visible thing. It's so that they see, they see the, their rejection clearly. Which I find, again, I find it fascinating and troubling. So I wrote a multiple choice question to see how you do here. So let's imagine you try to share your faith with someone and it goes bad, right? They say, heck no, I don't want any of that Jesus stuff. Do you A, kind of silently retreat back into the quiet corners and shadows of your faith, never to speak about it again with that person? That's A. Do you B, 
feel like a failure because you were unsuccessful in their conversion? Do you see, think this is a trick question because you don't talk to anybody about Jesus? See, I picked C because I knew like if in doubt you'd pick C and then you'd feel really bad. <laughs> what a zinger. Or do you D, take off your shoes in the boardroom, right? Stand on the table and you have nothing to do with your coworkers. Like you see how it's fascinating and problematic? Like I just, we should note, okay? And this is what is a little bit unique. Is they are witnessing to the village and in this case, in verse 11, the village is speaking back. The village is rejecting. It's a public forum. They're being publicly rejected, publicly turned out, and so they're publicly pointing to, you are rejecting us. You are sitting beneath the judgment of all that that means, okay? So I don't think this is the sort of thing where if you invited a friend out to talk about Jesus and they said, oh, I don't know, I really need to think about it, you'd say, there is no thinking about it. Let me get my shoes. I'm not saying that, Okay. That's not the implication here. This is, this is, in this unique circumstance, it's a little more public. Just like uh, uh, a preacher has a, a public capacity and opportunity that doesn't exist necessarily among friends. There's, sometimes you can say things far more boldly or far more strongly in a, in a public setting because things matter differently. So I, I, don't think, I don't think the implication is, is that we should walk around with loafers that are easy to get off, Okay? so that we can shake it off at the moment's notice. I don't think, nor should we be taking any joy in that. I do wonder, however, whether we make the loss of their rejection known in some way. That has been, that has been fascinating me. So I share the gospel with somebody. Oh, I'm so bad at this. I share the gospel. And then they, re- they do the soft rejection. And the temptation is so real just to boil the faith down to some kind of preference. Was there a great loss in that moment? Categorically, objectively, universally, yes. Is there loss in the rejection of the Savior? Yes. Is that loss minor or magnificent? Huge. Do we, uh, this is where I think, in my mind, I, I, I still, I hope I give you in the words that, that oh, it warrants, I'm realizing my responsibility, our responsibility in sharing the gospel extends all the way through the rejection to still love them. You can still love them better by, say, by making them known, you know what, it's not simply what's good for you is fine and what's good for me is fine. I just happen to like Jesus. You know, Jesus just really works for me. But whatever's good for you, no. You love them better if you can in some way that's appropriate for your setting make the loss known. That, I think, is generally applicable. This, our culture is so worn out with people who are sorry they're Christian. Just constantly half ashamed Okay, 
Another thing, by the way, another thing that's at the heart of this idea of shaking off, your, off the dust of your feet, the very heart of it is Jesus saying to the disciples, you're not responsible to make converts. You're not responsible for that. You're responsible to share. And you can be as comfortably bold in the sharing as you can be in the way you depart the village. It is absolutely not on you whether they receive the Lord or not. How you, how you behave is on you. But their response is not on you. I think so much harm is done. So much harm in God's church is done when we feel responsible for their decision. This is the recipe by which churches end up counting the wrong things and then sh- reaching for the wrong things. Counting decisions. How many decisions were made today? Well, I can tell you how many decisions can be made depending on how lame the... The offering, you know? I mean, if you're chasing decisions, then your temptation will be to dull down the message or to offer false assurance or to feel successful in your faith because of what someone else did. Think of that. You are enslaving yourself, in this case, to someone else's response to the Lord, whether it's real or or ill-informed. The Lord's saying, don't do that. Jesus is telling his disciples, I am going to arm you with the power vested in my authority, and you're going to go in, and you're going to cast out demons, you're going to heal people, and yet villages will reject you. I'm going to spend a significant portion of my few little time here telling you what to do when they tell you to get out of town. Because it's not your fault. Okay, verse 12, the message. So they went out, <clears throat> proclaimed that people should repent. I think in Matthew it says they pro- go out and pro- proclaim, proclaim the kingdom. I think in Luke it said proclaim the gospel. They go tell the message of God. Now, um, I do find it interesting, the word repent, because um, we don't like to do that. Uh, we don't like to repent. We certainly don't want to tell in someone else, you need to repent. I think the idea reaches back to verse 11. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe you're thinking, I don't experience rejection of the gospel. Just let's put some of the pieces together. Maybe you, we don't experience rejection because we don't preach repent. And maybe we, maybe we don't preach repent because we don't want to experience rejection. Or maybe we don't preach repent because we don't really rely on the power of God. Or maybe we don't preach repent because we're alone in our work and so we feel small and finite. You know, the message, so the message of the gospel really is so big that it needs, you do need to be with somebody and you do need to have the power of God to be fully faithful in its faithful transmission. To be said fully with the right tone and the right spirit and the right boldness and confidence in God and yet love for others. You need somebody with you and you need the Holy Spirit.
Last thing here, verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So Jesus gave them this authority. And they went out. They faithfully preached his message. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. And in the process of doing that, they also cast out demons and they healed. The other gospel narratives, uh, Matthew and Luke, are more, more colorful in this. I mean, Jesus says, go, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they went out with power. And they did it. And what I think is a little bit unique about this narrative is kind of how colorful the Holy Spirit is in this environment. Demon casting and and uh, healing. That's, I mean, I think the Lord uniquely endowed them in a, in a pretty important way. But I also think, this is why I, I don't want to just invalidate it. Oh, well, that was for that time. I will say what's interesting about that time is demon possession and illnesses were highly religious ideas that, per, that were pervasive in their culture. So every town understood demon possession. And every... There was not a medical field, a secular medical science that said, well, we just need to diagnose that. That's uh, epithemia, or I don't, I don't know. I'm sure that's not a thing. I don't know any of those words. But, and if it is, I'm sorry if you have it. Uh, they didn't have that. They didn't have a scientific category for the illness. Every illness was spiritual. The superstitious slash physical realm just blended in very, very beautiful. If you tripped in a hole and broke your leg, there was superstitious religion about it. Like, why, what'd you do wrong to deserve that? So what, what's happening is, is the power of God is coming through the disciples to the place where the religion of humanity is way off and correcting it. It's going to a place where they are very religious and they're making day in, day, day out decisions about what God is more powerful and where do I go with this problem. That's, that, God empowered them to meet that. And I would say in a very, very general way, the messengers of God should be engaged with the people to whom they bring the message. That's, this is the picture here is, is we don't simply bring a sterilized message Posting it on Facebook doesn't count. We don't just bring a message and let the words fall. We bring the message into the midst of people and engage in the issues where the gospel has the most to say. Which I would say is is probably not issues of the common cold. Now, people get very religious when uh, their health gets severe. When everything on the shelf has failed and they they break glass and they pull out faith, then they get religious. But I do think there's other places right now where the power of God. I what I mean to say is I think the power of God would manifest itself quite differently here in our culture and time, right now. I think as the years go on, I think the testimony of godly marriages and families will become increasingly more beautiful and and powerful. And we need the Holy Spirit for that. Do we not? 
I think, genuine community that doesn't rally around some kind of substance abuse or vice is increasingly rare. I think we live in a hyper-privatized culture that is losing grasp of selfless friendship. Those things need the Holy Spirit. And I want to say, that's where people will see it in your life. We, you know how many houses have alarm systems today? We have become so distrusting of one another. I think of people that are emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit to stop on the side of the road and help somebody. You know, those things have power. The general teaching, whether those are the things, obviously the Lord reserves the right to exhibit his power through us for the gain of his kingdom in the places where he desires it to take root. So to give yourself to that is great. And if he would have you lay your hand on somebody and heal them, great. But the, the truth of the matter is, I don't think we should be looking for this manifestation like this right now unless we were in places where those were the questions they were asking. But I do think we carry more than the message. We carry the power of God with us. And what you see here is people preaching and touching. They're preaching and they're involved. It's not the message and then they're running. It's the message and then they're involved in the lives of the people and they're laying their hands on them and they're praying for them and they're being healed. That, I think, is what God would do. And in doing that, I would say God would have us do that, not alone, but with someone. This is where, you know, my first year in Alaska, I was the only, only Christian in my fighter squadron. And I got to the point where I thought, I started to wonder, is it possible to be Christian in this job title? I mean, the, the vices were so extreme. And the demands and the pressures. And then... My wife and I were just tremendously lonely. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And then, boom, the doors opened. And believers showed up in that squadron. And it was awesome. And it was, it was, it was transformative. And God did it. Because God does not send us out without his power. And he would not have us be alone. In the work to which he's called us. And he would not have us be so busy equipping the shelf to solve problems that we would never lean on him in faith. And he would not have us share the gospel in such a weak, skim milk sort of way that no one would ever realize they've lost something in its rejection. He would have us love them more to get involved in their life and be willing to get your hands messy because the gospel and the Lord of the gospel is present. That's what he would do. Let's pray. Lord, May that be said of us, Father, that we were not disengaged Christians uh, who held tightly to your message um, as though the life raft had no more room. But Lord, help us to understand that you, we are sent. Even into this general life, we're sent to be something and someone different among our people. 
Father, and I pray, I pray you give us a special love for the people that we inter- with whom we interact with. A, a non-judgmental love, Lord, that enjoys imagining how to get your love to them. How to call them to repentance. Father, help us to move uh, beyond knowing that we have your power to believing and trusting and relying on your power. I pray this, Lord, that we might be effective. Father, the two young men who are coming forward in baptism, may, may you anoint them in, uh, in the way you see fit so that they too can join us in this work. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.